I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co, I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down where we're going. I have an incredibly exciting announcement to make. I am taking this very podcast, Conversations of Inspiration, on the road, with six live recordings taking place across the UK. Each episode will take place in a very special venue with a highly inspirational guest, including a speech from me and a chance to ask questions too. The evening will include wonderful entertainment, magical Holly & Co details, a fantastic opportunity to shop small business, drink a delicious tipple or two, mingle with like-minded people, make new friends, and I will ensure you will be thoroughly and utterly inspired. I believe that one conversation has the ability to change the course of your life forever, and I want it to be mine. So don't delay. Get your ticket to Conversations of Inspiration, the podcast live in partnership with NatWest. We'll only be recording six live episodes this year, so make sure you don't miss out. Head to holly.co to get your ticket today. This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to the jeweller Alex Munro. Alex grew up in the Suffolk countryside where his love of nature and being creative was inspired. After his Swallows and Amazon upbringing, Alex moved to London and trained at the Sir John Cass School of Art. And soon after, Alex created his first jewellery collection in 1987 to much critical acclaim. And the Alex Monroe jewellery brand was born. 30 years on, Alex is still producing beautiful quality jewellery and he is a much-loved brand worldwide where each and every piece is still individually designed and handmade in England by Alex and his team of expert jewellers. His most famous piece is the beautiful gold bumblebee necklace which took his brand into the stratosphere when it was featured on the cover of Vogue and worn by Sienna Miller and Emma Watson. It was such a pleasure to visit Alex in his buzzing headquarters in London, where we chatted about his journey so far, the process for anyone who wants to create products that lasts a lifetime, and how he has kept true to his brand after 30 years. Tissues at the ready, guys, for this letter to self is one that's just going to stay with me forever. Hi, Alex. So Hello. utterly lovely to be in your wonderful London boutique shop here in Bermondsey. It's so beautiful. 
the beehive inspired windows. We've just been literally thinking, how much is this interview going to cost me? Because I've now seen everything firsthand. And looking at the inspirational, iconic bee necklace, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. But what an incredible brand experience I've just had already. Well, that's just brilliant that you should say that. That's exactly what we wanted. I designed and built this building on purpose and we I worked with some fantastic architects. I wanted the, the, the building to be like a piece of jewellery. So I said, what I want is when you turn the corner from the end of the road, I want you to sort of see it and go, wow, what's that? That's interesting. And then you approach it and you, you look at the outside and you wonder what's going on inside and then you kind of press the bell and come in and then you'll get... Particularly if you come up on a sort of bespoke appointment, like we are, um, above the boutique, you'll wind your way up the stairs and you'll see a million things that I've collected over a lifetime and all sorts of plants and leaves and, and books and... Sewing machines. God knows what, all just, that all I, that stuff. It's all, it's all me on the web. And, and so, so you're sort of immersed in who we are. And I, I think a big part of that was I wanted everyone that we, we meet and chat to to sort of be in the vibe but also for us as a group. Certainly has. And as a self-confessed jewellery-aholic, um, I'm completely obsessed with your jewellery. And we're so lucky to be one of the high street retailers that now stocks your pieces, selling your beautiful haberdashery scissors, necklace, needle and thread earrings, and your twine pendant. And each piece yeah. is just so stunning and fun. And it's such a joy to be able to see your jewellery in our cabinet every day when I walk, get into work. And every day I think to myself, I have to interview Alex Monroe for this podcast. <laughs> and finally, the That's day's lovely. here. So <laughs> I cannot it. wait to talk to you about your incredible journey. And thank you for taking the time. So I'd love to start with your story. So you grew oh. up in Suffolk in the countryside. Mm -hmm. Were you always a creative child? And what led you to this interest in jewellery making? Yes, I was always creative. I think a friend of mine's just said he wants to learn how to draw, you know, in his middle age. And I, I was sort of saying, actually, what most of what drawing is, is looking. And so as a little boy, I was just so fascinated. You know, I think a lot of children do that. They sort of squat down with a magnifying glass and look at the bugs in the grass. Or I had binoculars to look at the birds in the trees. And I used to collect everything, you know, leaves and flowers. And I always press flowers. But I was ill a lot. And I spent a lot of time in bed and also I was, so, so when I was in bed, I used to draw, I used to draw birds. I can still visualize and feel the excitement of drawing a bird and getting it right and feeling that, that the experience you had when you saw it out in the wild, you were somehow talking about that or sharing that message on the page. And then I think like every child, when you do something and you're really excited about it, you immediately go and show your, you know, mum and dad or brothers and sisters or whatever. Yeah. And because they're always lovely, they go, oh, aren't you clever? How lovely. And they all say how brilliant you are. And they pin it up on the, you know, on, on the, the fridge. fridge or whatever it is. And it just feels great because you had a feeling about something and you wanted to express that feeling and share it with other people. And they kind of got it. And so I think that process hasn't mm. changed in the least and it's funny because now nowadays if I make a piece of jewelry I'm really excited about it and I and I sort of turn around to everyone else in the studio and say hey guys what do you think of this and then if they if they sort of go oh that's nice you know and someone goes oh well done sort of thing then I think oh my god so it goes in the scrap box <laughs> what what you need to do is you need to say hey guys what do you think about this and they and when they go oh my gosh you know I want one of them how amazing how yeah, cute and yeah. then they run down to the other office and say look well look at this and then you kind of go okay, okay. that's it I've got it that that that's, that, that's, that excitement yeah. I have 
But but yes, as a young suspect, a lot of time under the weather, and so I was in bed a lot, and I used to draw. And then this, I still haven't got to the bottom of it, but um, because I was ill so much, my parents shipped me off to this old elderly couple of old birds. One, one, there, were, there were two uh, women that lived together and another woman, and they lived in the middle of nowhere, a bit further north in Suffolk, on the river. And uh, to toughen me up, they, they sort of gave me a shotgun and said, you know, go. And I was about sort of eight or something, you know, and they said, go, go and shoot. If you want supper, go and shoot it. And as I used to go out and, and shoot a rabbit. That's and what you have need to, to do, you know, give an eight-year-old a shotgun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They had lots of boats, so I used to go off on the river on my own and, you know, sort of fishing and swimming. And it was just completely, uh, it was completely without any parental supervision and very little school so it, so I sort of feel like it was probably one of the last sort of vestiges of a very old-fashioned uh, rural way of life. So it was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, uh, building camps, camping out under the stars. Yeah, cooking, I, I, you, you collected food. rubbish, didn't you? Everything, Rub, everything. Everything. You built guns and spears and made clothes and even a motorbike, is that it was, right? It was just to start off with, when I could get hold of the shotgun, that was great. But uh, I, other than that, I made my own bows and arrows and then I worked out how to make um, gunpowder and so we were, I made sort of shotguns of my own and, and bombs and then we had a sort of war with the gamekeeper so I used to make these sort of bombs that would blow him up if he tried to come past and, and then, and then we, we had this rough boys school quite near us and they would always come and try and scrump the apples and when my sisters grew up obviously they were coming around to, 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 to see my sisters so I, I felt it was me and my brothers thought it was our job to defend the the house so we we just built weapons it was all about weapons so it was kind of like a yeah but with a slightly sort of darker thing because there was there was quite a lot of violence as well so I wasn't a sort of strong strong chap I was quite weedy like I say and always ill but I was just got better and better at making things so if we wanted harpoons or or whatever it was and then and then later on of course when we got to be about sort of 14 15 and we wanted to go to into Ipswich to see the stranglers or the sex pistols or whatever i would make the clothes and the and particularly the sort of dog collar necklaces and that kind of thing so so i was always called on to my kind of place the way i fitted in was to be the maker of things and and pink pvc trousers yeah all that my i had a sister who did the knitting so i had a sort of pink um, mohair off the shoulder jumper pink PVC trousers, and, and then I wore sort of eyeliner. But trouble was that in Ipswich in sort of late 70s, if you turned up in town wearing makeup and pink trousers, you just, I just got punched, you know. Within, I mean, I can kind of see it now. The world's so much nicer now that people can be who they want to be, but it, it wasn't good for me. So I pretty soon realised I had to get the hell out there and, um, <laughs> just, yeah. and leave it all behind and, and, and not look back, really. And London was the place to come. I think a lot of, a lot of young people who are a little bit different gravitated to, to the capital where you could be who you wanted to be and people didn't care. So you moved to London yeah. and, you, and you studied at the John Cass Art School. Yeah. What was that experience like? Is this where you then took what you, all that making and creating? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you're not into the war cabinet or something. I don't you know <laughs> how, how this ended up being jewellery. But is this where you learnt your skills in jewellery making? I think there are various ways you could look at it. One, one way would be I didn't really fit into school. I was, I was very bright, but it wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I didn't really get it. So I didn't turn up very often. And uh, if you're not very good at school, you normally end up, as a boy, you end up either in the, um, on the sports fields or, in, or if you're not very good at 
school and you're not very good at sports, you end up in the art room. And if you're not great at art, you end up in a sort of pottery room where you, know, where you, where you make things, or the woodwork place, you know. So actually, I had a, I had a mad, passionate interest in fashion. So I, I used to make all my own clothes, and, and, I, and I just loved dressing up very effeminately, actually, looking back on it. I didn't sort of realise at the time. And so I wanted to do fashion, so I applied for fashion school, and I didn't get into any, because this, this kind of oddball country boy dressed like a weirdo just wasn't welcome. So I knew I was good at making things, I knew I liked fashion. Yeah. I thought, well, hey, we'll, we'll give jewellery a go. So it was very much a sort of, that was the last thing that was open to me. It was a vehicle for leaving home, I suppose, and, and coming to London. So I, I remember hitchhiking in the back of a... Ford Transit van and, and um, I sort of hung out with the cool guys and there was a band called Kissing the Pink and the drummer from Kissing the Pink was moving flat and, and I moved into his old place in uh, Leytonstone and started at uni and I was just immediately oh they'll hate me I, was, I, think, I, was, I think I was quite good, I was great at making things so mm. I was immediately happy in the workshop I'd, I'd sort of grown up in my, in my dad's workshop and then I had my own workshop so the workshop was home for me yeah I used to get in first thing and and get into the workshop and make things. We used to have to finish in this terrible rush to dash over to the White Hart for last order. So I would make things from probably from half nine in the morning till about half ten, quarter to eleven at night. And occasionally we'd have to, because it was a degree, we'd have to sort of write an essay, which I would just, you know, not do and then get in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> so because I was just in the workshop making things. And it all just really clicked for me. Uh, in uni, I was actually making more... Uh, a lot l- larger things, so it was a lot of silversmithing and more sculptural things, so it was much more art schooly. I didn't do much jewellery. But in line with everything else that had happened, is the minute anyone told me to do anything, I just did the opposite. So I, I was very reactive. So if they said, oh, why don't you try and you know do it this way, I would just do it exactly the opposite and get everyone annoyed and stare them in the face and say well I did it that way because I wanted to you know fight me for it so so Gosh. and I suppose that might have been a bit like going into it which in yeah you know in, 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 in PVC trousers I, and... I didn't I'm making I'm overblowing that that I, that didn't happen very often at all but I think probably you know at school they were sort of saying you must do this and I was just like well I'm going to do the opposite and what are you going to do about it wow so there was a there was quite a reactive element to the whole thing and after graduating from art school, you enrolled on a course at the RCA called yeah. Business for Designers. Yeah. I know so many people who go to art school and often that vital piece of training or education that they don't receive is actually how to monetize their skills. And I'm really passionate about actually putting this business advice or entrepreneurial training on the curriculum as in the future, you know, everyone will have a small business of some sorts and we could all so benefit from this education. But on this course is where you wrote your business plan and you had the light bulb moment where you knew you wanted to make something for people to actually wear rather than these sort of art pieces. Can you tell me about this? I had my business, the business plan actually did involve a bit of sort of arty stuff, but I I, I sort of looked at the market that was then, and you had sort of Bond Streety, sort of Tiffany, uh, Bulgari sort of places, and then you had the H. Samuel sort of places, and you did have a bit uh, by the checkout in Topshop or Marks and Spencers, a sort of very cheap plasticky something that would go with the shirt you just bought. But I was fascinated because there was nothing, I was Mm. thinking, well... What about in between all those mm. all those things? What about in between jewellery, fashion and craft? 
I don't want to be in any one of those clubs. I just want to do my own thing. So I just made a collection of earrings. They were, they were based on sort of Celtic accents, I remember, from the um, British Museum. And I made them in my workshop, which was a tiny little workshop, and I couldn't afford the rent, and I couldn't afford the rent at home. And it was, you know, there was absolutely hard no times. money. Hard times, you know, but hard times but fun times. And I, I just walked to, um, I thought Hampstead was posh, so I walked to Hampstead Village, and I, and I walked into every shop and said, do you want to buy these earrings? And uh, someone did, and they gave me, I remember it was £60 for, the, for, a, for a whole bunch of earrings, was, you know. Good money then. And they all sold, really. They sold that weekend. And they said, great, we want some more. So I used the £60 to buy some more material. And probably the difference between me and a lot of my contemporaries was that I marched into a shop with my product. And like I used to show my my mum and dad my picture of the thing and say, look what I've done. And I sort Mm. of did that. Look what I've done. These are great. Mm. Look what I've done. And they, Mm. they sort of got it. And then I got the money. And that was... That was so fundamental. I, I, one of the reasons I fought my way through uh, through university was I wanted to make things. I was I was I was keen on commercial, and the word commercial throughout art school had been a, a really dirty word, it was, and I didn't understand why it was bad and wrong. And I was I was thinking, well, you know, commercial yeah. doesn't mean bad to me. It means it means that you can sell it and earn a living. And I've got a skill, and I'm bloody good at what I do, and I should be paid the same as a banker. And when I I would take it to a place and they'd say, oh, you know, we'll 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 take it on sale or return and we'll let you know if it sells and that sort of thing. And I was like, you know, you don't come into work in the morning and people say to you, oh, well, we might pay you for your day's work, you know, at some point <laughs> in the future, we think it's worthwhile. You get you you've yes. done the work, you get yes. your money, and you you know. So I didn't understand why people viewed creative people differently to a plumber or an electrician or a or a banker or a school teacher or a nurse or a doctor i suppose that was one of those reactive Mm. things i was just like Mm. no these are nice Mm. you'll Mm. sell them give me the money now (laughs) you know and i'm and i'm going to make a living out of this so it it was very light bulby that that was very very simple and straightforward i mean it's almost like that the simplest easiest thing in the world is that for me i I don't understand so much about the world of business and the, the way things work but but i I have a, a really nice idea and I buy some materials and make that idea and work out how much it cost and how much you know I want for my trouble making it and then sell it to someone for that. I mean, it's really, really super straightforward. Yes. But do, do you think your counterparts, so, so when you take yourself back to that period of time, do you think that they weren't planning in making a career out of what they were studying? Because I always, I come across a lot of people where, you know, to build a business doing what you love, what you're fantastic at, what's in your soul. And for a lot of people, they might study it, well, let's say, but they'll end up not doing it as a living and so I think more and more as we go in the future we're going to hopefully people are going to be building much more things that they love to do I think we're much more mindful at this point in time but if you go back to yourself then maybe you sort of got it but that wasn't really the thing to do you know it it wasn't and it wasn't the thing to do you're quite right and there was a large element of of people having the stuffing knocked out of them so an awful lot of nice people and very talented people left my course and really just had the stuffing knocked out of them over a period of time and at a certain point they kind of think do you know what I I don't want to put up with all this I'll I'll get a nice job and have a a regular income and I think the difference is probably it it certainly helps to have a 
broad skill set if you're going to run a business. So you don't necessarily have to be the best at one particular thing, but if you have the broad skill set, that, that helps. And also I think um, this sort of belligerent, sort of slightly rebellious, like, like sod you, and the, the, almost the more people say no, the more, the, the yes. more, that, the yeah. more that gives you the, the sort of... The power. The power, <laughs> and the, and like, oh, bloody so you sort of thing. And, it, and, and so this might be a sort of slightly belligerent um, side to me that made me just keep... I certainly wasn't a better designer than other people and, and, or, or better anything. I just think uh, I might have been a bit more bloody-minded. And just by pure luck, I actually really enjoyed getting the money for something and, mm. and, and making the books balance. And, and I was sort of arrogant enough to, I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but if I made you something nice, I, I, was, yeah. I, was, I was like so excited about it. I think people were affected by that. Quite a lot of creative people, if you go to a sort of craft fair or something, they sort of skulk around the back of the, the, the stand or whatever it is they're showing and are terribly embarrassed. And they say, oh, it's not very nice and the glaze didn't work, you know. And it, you know, there's no, yes, there's no. Yes. Uh, whereas I was like, yeah. "This is great. You should have it." You know? <laughs> <laughs> it probably goes back, though, isn't it, to that lack of business advice for creatives? Yeah. You know, the two can go hand in hand. We're often show that vision of the struggling artist, but creatives as you know, can make a seriously good living, especially nowadays with the internet. And, you know, I remember building Not on the High Street. Some people used to sneer saying, how can you make money from being a lifestyle business or a hobby business? But it would give me even more great joy to say that, you know, well, actually, guys and all the naysayers, I had the same thing. It fueled me yeah. um, that, you know, 30 <laughs> of our top partners at Not on the High Street now turn over a million pounds a year through Not on the High Street. And they were a kitchen table business. Yeah. So it goes back to that business advice, that money advice as well. And I wanted to sort of dispel this myth. And it's incredible that being creative or having creative business means that you won't be good at the finances. You won't be good at making money with the right training and advice you can be hugely um, successful and you're just this totally you're great agree. great example of it and and what what's interesting is that i'm not very good if you give me a block of text and i i simply can't read it i'll sort of look at the words and um i can i can find my eyes looking at the words and and suddenly I'm, i sort of find myself going yeah but if i if i change the thing and i'm thinking about something completely different while my eyes look at the words yeah. and I have to go back to the beginning and go right concentrate and, and about sort of a line on I'm off you know planning what I'm going to grow in the garden that year or something it's just it's just impossible for me however I, I, I invented my own way of keeping accounts that was sort of done in with colors and shapes and, yeah, and yeah. I can look at that and I can sort of see I can visualize how the how the the business side of things worked and it just worked really well for me so a lot of it was was adapting my approach to suit my yes. particular way of learning and seeing things and kind of not listening. I think that, that's another essential thing was that, you know, an awful lot of people have studied business and they know exactly how it ought to be done. It's great to listen to them, but actually you'll have your own mm. way of thinking and working and mm. seeing. Mm. And I'm, and I'm quite keen on listening to people's opinions and then doing the opposite yes but yeah. often so but it's just brilliant isn't it because i think that the you know the future now is for the right side of the brain is it's the what yeah, i say yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like Absolutely. it's it's you know the left side of the brain is have been in control and now for instance you're like okay well actually yeah i can't do it this way this left side of the brain so i'll create a way of managing my finances in the right side of the brain way and hey presto i'll build a very successful business out yeah. of it and so it's again one of the things i want to try and do with holly and co is dispel 
dispel this myth that unless it's done in this left side of the brain way, it's not proper business. And actually, that's going to be a very interesting thing as we forge ahead is how can I help people run businesses that actually excites the right side of the brain when you have to deal with the fundamentals, which is finances, balancing books, um, building a team, all of these things. And people say, well, I'm just not very good at that. My husband does that. I'm like, oh, no. We just they, haven't found a way of unlocking your, your, your genius on that side. They are good at it. Because if you can make a pair of trousers and know that you need X amount of fabric and, and, and sort of write a list of the things you want, you're basically, it's, all, it's actually it's, it's the, same it's, thing. It's the same as sort of having, you know, spending £10 on something and bringing you know, uh, fifteen pounds in, and then you've got five pounds left over to buy some more materials. It's it's all yes. it's all the same, and and it's just how you look at it. I think is that is. I is totally, the thing, I yeah. totally agree, especially now. Slightly veering off that subject, yeah. but I wanted to ask you. So you know, you started building these brilliant pieces, and then it grew. So now you've got a brand, which you know public can come in and buy and you've scaled your business you've scaled that creativity but you've retained a beautiful brand so how have you managed to keep that balance and allowed yourself to scale commercially yet retained the authenticity and the what I call the life force of a brand Um, I think that's really interesting because because how many people and brands do we know that have grown and changed and we've sort of lost who they were i think i think probably the most common example would be with food you know sort of restaurant so you know typically a you know someone would start up a lovely little restaurant and you would go and eat there and it's absolutely brilliant and then they'd get a bit sort of well known and and then they'd sort of you know write cookery books and go on the telly and get a tv show and then you go back to their restaurant and the food's rubbish and everything that you first liked mm. and they've just taken their eye off the wall so I think um again it's probably a bit easier for me because I am through and through I'm a I sort of have an idea about something and the best way I can express that is through making something mm-hmm. so just recently I've last a give a talk at a wedding and I've been sort of trying to write this speech and and every time I just start trying to write it I end up thinking of a piece of jewellery and I think this piece would say would be better than my speech if I made it so I don't want to be distracted and I don't mm-hmm. want to spend too much time looking at other things I mean and also when I go back again to the to, to me drawing a picture of a of a bird when I was a child and showing my parents but if I make something that I really like, I want to share it with people. And it, it, it's very much like if I'm cooking and I'm you know, making yeah. a sauce and it's gorgeous. Your sort of natural instinct is to turn around to anyone in the room and go, oh, taste this, you know. Mm. And so if I make a nice piece of jewellery, the more people I can share it with, the better. So if I, can, if I can nip over to Australia and go around shops there and go and do some things in Japan and then over to the, the States... It's great because these are different people in different mm, countries speaking mm. different languages, but but we're all we're all sharing you're the same thing. Still thinking at the core. But so what you're saying is you've you are keeping your focus on the focus. It's yeah? all about this human to human interaction of me imagining something 
and then making that thing in a real, in a Mm three-dimensional object and then showing it to someone and say, look what I've done. And it's not even, I never even call it selling. It's just, it's just wanting to share this, this idea. And normally if you do it well and if you're enthusiastic about it, the other person will go, I love that. Can I have one? Because I kind of get what you're doing. But you can do that, you know, particularly it's much easier now because you can do that online and on videos and Instagram and you can do it with tens of thousands of people. And so I think the important thing is just keeping that core, just remembering who you are. You know, I'm just a sort of guy that has ideas and wants to make them and, and is happy to kind of show them off to people. And, hasn't and, changed and, and, in the that, and you haven't changed. It's interesting for, for those who are listening and who might not know your work, would you be able to explain? So you talk about that sort of process of making. Would you be able to explain your process of making your jewellery? Yeah, it's yeah. so unique. I would be unhirable as a designer and jewelry maker because I I can only go my own way you know I, I I try and do things differently and it always just comes back to to my own way so I will have a thought or an idea a good example might be um the idea of absence and loss and so it's just a vague feeling that I have there maybe I'm picking this up from watching films reading books the idea of separation and and absence and Keeping a connection with someone, I suppose that's partly what jewellery is, you know, you can, you can give us a little sort of memento or something, so it's, it's actually an object that evokes a feeling or a memory or something. So I might, I might have these vague feelings, and then there was an exhibition at the Maritime Museum about mariners who used to go off in, back in the day when they'd have to go off for a year or two to, you know, and they might not come back. And it was a lovely exhibition, it had a section in it of, of the objects that they would they would make for their sweethearts at home and and what a lot of them meant so for example a swallow and often they'd get a swallow tattoo um, because the swallow symbolized returning or they might for example get an existing object and cut it in half and they take one half the other person would get the other and when they came out they'd fit back together you know all these these beautiful little symbols things so then that that sets off the sort of thought process and then and i'll then go out and go to more museums and i'll draw in nature and then my sketchbook gets full and it's full of stuff that I've collected because I can't go anywhere without picking things up and, and, and folding things. So it's a great big squished up, can't stay together sort of book of, of things. You probably saw when you came in. I've got I this. did. Oh, there's a nice leaf. For those listening, there was a book on the table <laughs> with all these leaves on the top. And so, you know, in other podcasts I do, you know, they're moving something else on the table. Here we were moving a notebook with a ton of leaves all, on it. It's all full of things. Every, and, and so it, it drives everyone mad because if I go for a walk, I'm, I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. And I'll pick up a stone or a feather or whatever it is. But so I'm sort of gathering all these things, drawing my ideas in the sketchbook. But I'm not like a great drawer. So in the end, I have to I have to sort of leave the sketchbook and sit down on my workbench and start trying to make these things in three dimension and express some of the ideas that I'm thinking about in three dimensions. And so, for example, going back to the swallow, actually, I was interested in the swallow tattoo, but I'm making jewellery. So, you know, then, then I get into into the swoopiness of swallows and what do swallows do what do I like about swallows and and then I explore that so I'm sort of sketching on the workbench and then I do this process I sort of show it around the workshop and of course um you know everyone's because I'm the boss everyone's always nice but if they sort of go oh yes that's nice then that, yes. then it goes into the scrap bin <laughs> but but if if and you get a huddle they say you know when how, how <laughs> oh my gosh you know then you kind of think okay I'm on to something so then it becomes a 3d object and then I'll design a collection around around my theme um, which will include um, rings necklaces bracelets and all the rest of it so and then what's great for me is that's that's pretty much 
me done because now we're at certain sizes that all the amazing wonderful talented jewelers over on Tabridge Road who, who make the jewelry so I kind of do all that get all excited and then it's then we're sort of thinking well where does that lead where, where what do we take that how do we develop that and, th- and that will start developing on to the next collection so God. yeah I have a very exciting announcement to make. The Congregation of Inspiration is back for its second year and tickets are now live. After its huge success in 2018, the Congregation of Inspiration, in partnership with NatWest, has been badged the UK's most creative business conference. I'm so honoured. Providing advice and inspiration for those running a business or for those dreaming of starting one. We're working hard to create an utterly inspirational day, jam-packed with incredible speakers and entertainment, life-changing advice from myself and esteemed guests, but also a chance to shop, eat and drink. And believe me, it's set again to be an Instagrammable extravaganza. But most importantly, it's going to be a chance for you to connect with your community, meet new friends, find your tribe. And I just cannot wait to take your questions, mingle with you all and have a tipple or two at the end of the day. So no matter whether you're an entrepreneur already on the path or a dreamer hoping to quit the nine to five to do what you love, the Congregation of Inspiration is one of the most important days to be part of. If you'd like to come to the Congregation of Inspiration 2019, tickets are now available at holly.co. I look forward to seeing you there. Each week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner on our ad break is Chris James. Over to you. My name is Chris James, founder of Chris James Mind Body. In the year 2000, I was attacked, which left me with a broken and dislocated neck. It was rebuilt using titanium plates and screws and I used the yoga and meditation I had learnt in India to recover. Because of this, my life became a mission to help others recover optimal health, and I had the tools and experience to do it. I find that my clients are time poor, stressed, habitually overindulge and under-exercise, and suffer from a mental fog. In response, I have developed a range of vegan and organic health supplements, including a 12 days health programme based on Ayurvedic principles. The range has received stellar reviews in the press, leading to our listings at Harrods, Whole Foods and other leading retailers. I recently became a published author with Penguin Books. My book, Mind Body Cleanse, brings all the elements of my experience together and was voted Best Self-Help Book in Your Fitness Magazine. It's available from Amazon and Waterstones. I would like to offer all listeners of this podcast a 10% saving on our award-winning range. Simply use coupon code HOLLY at our web store over at chrisjamesmindbody.com where you'll find lots of further information on the range and how to live life well. I can't wait to help you on your journey towards optimal health. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co.
We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. I think that's why I'm so in love with your jewelry. It's, it's that detail in it and that thought. And it's also fun. It's, you know, my favourite pieces that we stock at Holly & Co is the dressmaker scissors yeah. uh, from your haberdashery collection where the actual scissor blades move. And then <laughs> on another one I love is your little vintage bike where the wheels actually go around. And it's the magic in the detail that captures yeah. the customer's emotion. It must do. My other favourite piece of yours is the rose gold shrimp necklace that you yeah, made yeah. for the Goring Hotel. Yeah. Can you tell me the story behind how that came about? That was brilliant. That was really good fun because as I kind of say, as I grew up, I was I was always, I never really fitted. I was always very effeminate and very camp. All my friends were girls and I grew up in a matriarchy and uh, so it's always been very female focused. And, and at work now, I've been so lucky that I've worked with this amazing group of of, of, of amazing talented hardworking women but it's it's I sort of live in um in in women's world um and I was I have terrible trouble when I when I sort of go out with blokes because they all want to sit in that way where they sort of spread out across the chairs and and I I kind of go cross-legged and I want to talk about the fashion pages and they all want to talk about the sport so so the Goring was a great example where where um lovely Jeremy Goring who owns the hotel wanted to introduce a, a younger female crowd to the Goring because they're kind of used to having lots of Americans and, and the Queen Mother and all that sort of thing. Um, so quite often people get ask us to get involved because we have a, a, a really lovely and huge following of so much goodwill from from women and, 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 and young women. So um, I was interested in it firstly because I wanted to have a tea there which he gave me a lovely high tea there. So I was going to design a tea for them and, and make a piece of jewellery so you could take your mother or, or your wife or girlfriend or whatever and give them a lovely tea and a, and a super treat. And um, I met with all the grey-suited men and they said, what we want is a, is a, is a teapot or a teacup or, or, you know, a cake or something like that. And I was, I was like, Uh-oh. no, you really don't because, <laughs> because I, I cannot show any of that stuff to, a, to, to the editor of Vogue and, and, and they would just not be interested. That is just so unimaginable and boring. But I went away and made them. I actually made a super teapot that had a, a champagne sapphire briolette on a chain. And if you twisted the, the, the lid, it sort of dripped down or went up. But it was good fun, the teapot. But when I was a kid, I don't know if my mother's going to be listening to this, but we, didn't, we often didn't seem to have food provided. So we had to kind of get our own food and eat on, on our own devices. We used to, uh, we had a boat on the river. We used to go down the river to um, Harwich and buy shrimps off the boats as they came in. And then come back up, walk up to our house and make a big pot of tea and have a sort of big homemade white loaf and put lots of butter, cut, cut them into hunks, loads of butter and eat shrimps. So, and this was quite a common thing, this, this big bucket of shrimps, chunky white bread and a, oh, and a cup of tea. Absolutely the best. It's in the, we had a wall garden, sort of sitting in the sunshine, oh. eating shrimp and, and, uh, in, and delicious tea. bread with too much butter on and, and drinking tea. It was great. So I kind of said, that's what tea is to me. It's a shrimp tea, which is actually a thing that, that, that if you read, what's her name, Hartley Food in England, you know, that talks about it in the oldie days. And that's what we did. So I said, I went away and I, I made this teapot, but I also made this super shrimp with these lovely 
bugle eyes that were <laughs> that was sort of it was he was such a fun and lovely and so quirky and unusual and actually the goring is a quirky and unusual um hotel so i took them along and i said i've made your teapot and they all said oh i love that and i've also made this shrimp and they kind of went well we don't want a shrimp so we're going with the teapot and i said would you could we just clear the room and I, as i came through you have an, an office full of young women there. Can we just get the young women in? Because these are the people you want me to talk to. And don't tell them any. We'll just put the two down. And so they all went to one side and they asked the young women in. And they rushed towards the shrimp. Uh, the teapot sort of got knocked over and left on the side. And they were all like, oh, my gosh, it's so amazing. Where can we buy it? And I just looked at them and said, guys, you know, this is such a great example of how lack of diversity leads to the most uncreative decisions. I mean, they're all super, but it, it was a great example. And it was a super project. It was super successful and, and it did everything we wanted. And, you know, I took my mum oh. for tea at the Goring and she got the necklace. It was all lovely. So, yeah, it was great. But a good I, example. Of, I just love that story. I think the lesson for us all to learn is to be bold, is to be different, is to stand out, create a product that stands out amongst the grey. I just interviewed Sir John Hegarty last week and his whole mm. ethos in life is to be the black sheep zig when the world zags and your shrimp exactly. necklace was definitely a zag wasn't it I, it was i think a, 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 another good lesson is you can sort of be nice and clever about it so rather than sort of having an argument you it, it's a good idea to say just bear with me for a minute can we just look at it from another point of view in a nice way you know yes, yes. so i think that's one thing i've learned as i've grown older is is you can still go against the flow and bring people with you you don't necessarily have to be headbutting a brick wall the yes. whole time even though that can help at times I, I think what's also hard for, for maybe us to understand is the context with your jewellery so the jewellery market when you started out was such a different place mm. it was over 30 years ago now when you started out mm. in 1987 and I interviewed Anushka Dukas who founded Links of London and she described how old-fashioned and traditional the jewellery market was there when she started she made some fish cufflinks actually Oh, look at that yeah. I mean, fish, sorry that I didn't even mean to make that the example but and everyone went wild for them because they were so unique did you have a similar experience when what was that world like when you started out yeah, it was slightly different for me because I think I'd already been going a little while when links of London were set up and actually I was doing this you know quirky humorous very British nature-based jewelry and the, they were then called London Designer Collections. London Fashion Week asked me to um, exhibit. And immediately, Japanese clients um, mm. latched onto it. It was kind of a bit like Paul Smith. It was, you know, mm -hmm. very, very British, very wearable, but, but just sort of funny and quirky mm -hmm. and a little bit unexpected, sense of humour, tongue of cheek, and, and very, very British. So for the first 10 years of my business, the brand was, was, was huge in Japan. So I used to go mm. out there... It was almost like, it was great because I was almost like a bit of a celebrity and I would have receptions at the ambassador's residence and, you know, TV crews and hundreds of people and, you know, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. So I'd sort of, you know, go over there and be Mr. Big Shot and sell lots of jewellery and then I'd sort of come back <laughs> to Denise <laughs> and the kids and go, and go, hi, I'm home and they go, bugger off and do the washing up, <laughs> you know. So, well, but I used to be famous, you know. So actually I got over a bit of a, of a hump financially through being successful in Japan. And I developed my style mm -hmm. and I, I became proud of my style. And all credit to the 
British jewellery industry, I was making silver jewellery that was absolutely beautifully made to the finest detail. And that had never happened really in the British jewellery mm-hmm. industry. But the good thing was the jewellery industry in Britain was declining. And I did find a lot of amazing people who were willing. I would say, look, just try and make this silver in the in the way that you've been making your 18 karat gold. And sure, it might cost a few more quid, but but just just bear with me and mm. do it. And um, the work was coming through, and it actually ended up that they were often people were saw that this is going to be a really good sort of the future. So they really worked with me. I think we were probably one of the early companies who took help from the traditional jewellery industry and moved into this newer um, area of of beautifully hand making slightly more affordable silver jewellery that was quirky and unusual. So we, we kind of really yeah. worked with them to get these details, which the Japanese were enjoying. And then um, I'd been doing it for a while and it was pretty full on and, 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 and you know, I had young kids and I've been working long hours and travelling a lot and I, I came to a bit of a crisis point and I thought either I need to do this I think I think the tail was wagging the dog slightly. I was running myself ragged and I felt like I was being dictated to by my business and and mm-hmm. by all my customers. I thought, hang on a minute, I, I want to I want to flip this. I want to do this on my own terms. So actually, what I did was I took out a mortgage, remortgaged the house, and employed um, a, 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 a few really remarkably brilliant young women. And I said, let's make this work in the UK. And we did a collection which included, called Original Sin, which included the, the, the B, which I'm now very well known for. And all of that success that happened in Japan mm. started happening in the UK and the, and the States. Gosh. So, yeah, it was, I was very lucky to sort of cut my teeth in Japan yes. at a time where they were really into the style of work that I was making. It allowed you almost to have that sort of, um, you weren't as well known here. So no. you, it allowed you to have that. And you talk about that, B. I wanted it's over 10 years mm. ago now since you launched that piece. I'd love to hear firsthand just that inspiration and how you said it, it basically changed your business, that B, didn't it? Yeah. You know, is it true it was cast from a bee that you found in your garden? No. So, so what, what it is, is it's almost Process. like every, every, all, the, all the stars come into alignment. The, you know, it's almost like a, the bee chose me kind of thing. Yeah. You know how, so I was keen. My work in Japan was, quite, was, was very cute and quirky and lots of, lots of little flowers and things like that. And I wanted to, I thought maybe in the UK we, we, we might try and sort of spice it up a bit. A little bit more edgy isn't the word but a little bit more saucy, perhaps. And so I was thinking about the idea of, of sauciness and sin, and which led me to, to looking at original sin. And um, at the same time, there was an exhibition of uh, Lucas Cranach, who's this great painter. You might sort of remember it from uh, Adam and Eve painting from Desperate Housewives. Mm. And, and so I went to the Lucas Cranach exhibition. There's a fantastic painting he did of called Cupid Complaining to Venus. And Cupid... He's got his hand in a honeycomb and he's scooping out the honey and he's covered in bees being stung and he's looking up at Venus, uh, the goddess of love, sort of going, oh my God, you know, this is really unpleasant. And uh, what I took from the painting was, was that the bees were representing, Cupid wanted the sweetness, but the bees were, were, were representing the inevitable pain you're going to have to have so it almost represented the inevitable pain involved in love and and sex and all mm. that kind of thing so so i thought the bee became a really the more i looked at the bee they're, they're so lovely and soft and furry but they can 
pack right, a punch. Right, give you a pack a punch, yeah, and, with that sting. And you know, most, I had one two uh, weeks the, ago. The, the, the queen bee is, is this is a female, and she's she looks she looks soft, but she's got a power and a and a punch. And a, I just thought it was fitted in so many ways. So I actually started trying to make bees, and it was all going horribly wrong. And the weekend, my kids found a bee that, you know, they thought was sick and they put it in a matchbox and they brought it to me. And um, I said, oh, don't worry, you know, we'll, we'll nurse this bee back. And I took it into the house and I took it out of the matchbox and I was just like photographing from every angle and drawing. And, so, and you know, that bee was my, was my model. So I came back to the workshop and I, I think I got all those qualities that I was talking about in the bee. And I just thought this bee kind of says a lot about... Mm. love and and relationships and women and strength and all all the things that I was I wanted to talk about and uh, yeah it really it really kind of clicked for me and then oh. and then people I think firstly an actress well, Sienna Miller Sienna she wore Miller, it right, didn't yeah. she she wore it on the on the cover of Vogue yeah. I mean did that was it like an overnight thing that happened that there? was like one of those brilliant things with, with, I mean with that me must and have Emma. Been Emma, great. Emma Emma was the woman I talk about who, who I hired who was this amazing young woman who who's just done so brilliantly. And, and me and her were sort of side by side, just looking, sort of thinking, this is what we want, isn't it? And then sort of Sophie Dahl and Emma Watson and you know whoever you care to mention. And it was just like, isn't this brilliant? And it's such a nice thing because actually almost much more important than that was, was I had a lovely message from a woman who had got married and 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 was, was uh, had a baby and she'd left work um to, to be with the baby and the baby she just raised the baby and just, you, you slightly lose your identity as a, as a as a woman sometimes doing that and you get a bit lost and she'd taken her kid to school for the first time which was like heartbreaking for her but also she was feeling very detached from society and she dropped the baby off and all the other mums i remember it myself taking my girls to school all the other parents are all, all seem to know each other and they all have bloody clipboards and they're all asking you know collecting envelopes and you're standing there thinking the cliquey who, who yeah. the hell what is this you know and um her sister uh, bought her a bee necklace and gave it to her and then she took her kid into school wearing the bee necklace and one of the clipboard mums sort of said oh is that an alex or no necklace and they go yeah i've got the dragonfly and she said oh come over here and and she wrote oh, me this letter saying God. saying you know it's, it's literally very emotional sort of changed, you know, and it's only jewelry and it, yeah. you know but, but it's but, the power, but isn't that's it? The, yeah. that's the kind of the name of the game. And it's such a beautiful thing to do and such a beautiful thing to be part of. I could go on with all the stories of, the, of, of the, these amazing people who've, who have used jewellery in the way it's been used forever as a, as a way, as a material way of, of saying, you know, thank you, I love you, I miss you, or whatever the thing, you know, mm. it, it means so much to people. And, and, you know, so many times if you, if you meet someone and if you say, if your house was burning down, they'd go, well, I'd run and get that that ring my grandmother gave me or that necklace I was given for my 21st yeah. or whatever it is. So, yeah, jewellery's got this... It's a, great, it's a great privilege. It's got this physical thing that carries people through their lives and helps them often through difficult times. You know. I just couldn't agree with you more. But on, on the flip of that, so the rise of that importance mm. of jewellery, something that is one of the most horrible things that can happen when you're a small business is when you're copied. And mm. I can imagine this must happen to you, especially that bumblebee necklace, people coming along making some similar design or maybe a cheaper price. Have you experienced this and how... How, how have you dealt with it in a way that maybe someone listening who might be going through this and, you yeah. know, actually I know so many people who are going through yeah. this. How did you deal with it? So I've always taken the, the view that I was going to be forward looking and I was going to move forward. I wasn't going to sort of defend the, 
the rear battle sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I think that's that's helped a lot, in, is that we're always doing the next new thing. We have been absolutely directly copied often. 99 times out of 100, I just phone up, you know, and you say, did you realise, you know, this thing is very similar to one of mine? And they have all been gorgeous, you know, without exception. They say, oh, my gosh, really? I'm so sorry. What a terrible mistake. What can we do? Most people, you know, maybe I'm like super naive, but most people are really nice. We have had a couple of really nasty people, and then we've called up a lawyer and we've we've given them a bloody nose. But funnily enough, you know, you can you can sort of have a court case and uh, take it to court and get damages, and all the money you receive is generally exactly the same as the as the solicitor's fee. I've never once not You've had You've not cleared up, but... You know, that's a good piece of advice. Pick up that telephone. Pick up the phone. Don't yeah, be don't, scared. So, totally. Quite often you see people get all sorts of worked up about things, and actually if you, if you start off by talking to a, a legal beagle or a solicitor or someone, you know, they, they will say, right, you know, you've got a case, let's do it. Actually, it's much easier. You'll never make any money. It's much easier. Just, just fir- first point of call, try and find the right person. If you can find the most senior person and get mm. through to them, uh, they mm. generally care more about their reputation and they generally are very keen to, to see younger businesses and startup businesses succeed. So they would, in, in, in general, they would do everything they can to help you. I haven't met anyone yet who, who would knowingly... Oh, no, we had, we had one run-in with someone who I shouldn't name who, who knowingly did it and was absolutely vile. But that's once in, yeah, in my 30 yeah. years. So. so, gosh, that's such great advice, actually, because I think that's something that people just don't do. They're too nervous, so they call the lawyer first. And then it, you get yourself into that world, whereas actually picking up the phone... Um, what I also want to ask you is you've done some incredible collaborations and mm. it goes to show the value of this brand and how in demand you are. These famous big names want to align their brand with yours. That is a complete testament to what you have built. So you've collaborated with Nike, Disney, Kew Gardens, Buckingham Palace. What advice yeah. would you give um, how to pick and choose the brands that you should collaborate with how did you work know that these companies were right for the alex monroe brand yeah i i think um i think initially you kind of got to like them we would get a nice approach that the gang from nike were, were were really lovely and and then what's been important to me is it, it hasn't been about the financial uh rewards it's been all about i think you always want to start off from the point of view is is what's best for my customer you know how can i you need to give your customer a huge amount of respect so for example nike were doing this project called we own the night and they came to see me and they said you know a lot of young women don't go out running on the streets after work because they get kind of catcalled and they feel they're being judged on how they look and and uh, what they wanted to do was do a project where women could go, actually, you know, we, we want to be out and we want to feel free to go out on the streets after dark and, and go for a run. So they, was, they, they had this great initiative. They were, you know, taking groups of women out on runs and encouraging people at work to run and all this sort of thing. And then it was, it was culminating in a, in a 10K run in Alexandra Park, I think. And I just thought, what a brilliant, you know, this is the sort of thing that my, mm. me and my staff and my customers really want to get behind it's a really nice project they're doing so um we designed this brilliant finishers necklace for them 
And I've probably got the figures all wrong, but when they announced the, the collaboration, because the, the numbers weren't up, they didn't have the subscriptions. I, I seem to remember something like when they announced the collaboration, they had something like three and a half million hits on their thing that you get hits on, yeah. or whatever it was. And, um, you know, it was, it was suddenly it was all booked out and it became this huge thing and people were phoning up saying, but I, you know, people who'd never run before said, actually, no, you know, I, I don't see why, I, why am I feeling conscious about being out on, you know, I, I might be a little bit, overweight or underweight or feel my feet are too big or worried about some 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 stupid blokes you know wolf whistling or whatever it is but i'm going to do it you know and 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 they all got behind it and it was a sort of no-brainer that sort of thing but, yeah. but some people would sort of say oh why are you getting together with the big boys the big brand like Mackie?" and actually i was saying they they're totally trying to do something good here mm. and i and mm. and by us being a part of it we can we can help make it happen mm. and help help it make a difference i mean you know we're not changing the world but these are important things yeah. that we don't earn money out of sort of uh, just, just kind of selling stuff for the sake of it you know there's much more yeah, to what we're trying yeah, to do yes. than that so yeah it's there's just, a mission no or way. a vision and, and in those projects yeah it has to be in some way you know do no harm and perhaps try and do a little bit of good while you're doing it and then sure you can get the numbers right and you know you don't have to lose money out of it but but the important thing is to is to to be part uh, of it yeah yeah and I wanted to touch on something else, which is something that I, I talk about a lot, is trends. Mm. As it's something that I, I have quite strong viewpoints on. Mm. Do you ever take influence from them? Do you believe in trends? I don't, although... So, so what I do is, if you're a visual sort of person and you get out in the world, you will see what's going on. So, for example, after... Donald Trump was elected and the whole thing about gender and race stuff was all, was all sort of there and in front, in front of you. So you sort of notice what's going on. So when you're doing something creative, you might want to address what is going on in the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. But people still have pieces of jewellery that I made 30 years ago and they're still wearing them and they still look great. So whilst the jewellery I make is current and fashionable i think it needs to have a longevity so that, that which is something a little bit deeper than than purely being fashionable and current so i will often have some quite serious thought behind a collection that i'm making and then i i kind of start doing the research and, and i work with my design team then we get to a certain point where we sit down which is the fun bit and we sit down with the young women in the design team and they kind of go oh look you could layer it up like this and you could do this with it and i i have to sort of step back quite a lot because i'm a like i'm a middle-aged man so it's like you know i don't know what cool groovy young women are thinking at the moment so I, so I, so 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 often the way things are put together or the way that we present yes. it is 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 more is, on, is trend on trend in that way. Yeah. I mean, I just completely agree. I think in order to make something iconic, such as the bee necklace, it has to be timeless and it won't yeah. go in and out of trends. It will be around forever. It will be treasured forever. It's a classic. I call them evergreen products. Yeah. You know, they are the ones that just, you know, you can you layer up that bee necklace now. That's fantastic. But it's all that thought that's gone into it. And I also think that we're heading towards just being more sustainable sustainable, more ethical. We want to create products that aren't landfill, um, investing in pieces that you'll wear, treasuring them for a lifetime and such as jewellery. So, you know, you buy jewellery, spend a little bit more, 
keep it forever. You're not going through it. And touching on this, you support a lot of charities, mm. um, don't you, through good causes with your mm. jewellery. A huge shift that I'm noticing also in the world and interviewing and talking to people is entrepreneurs using their business as a force for good, mm. not just a tool to make money. Your business is doing this in many ways. And now with your charity um, collaborations, you created an exclusive jewellery piece to support the Haven Tree Necklace, mm. um, where 30 pounds from each sale goes towards the Haven charity and you donated sales from your floral alphabet necklaces towards Great Ormond Street Hospital. Is this an important part of your business? Do you feel do you feel like you should be responsible um, as a yeah, business it, owner? It, it's like yesterday I walked <laughs> about a mile and a half to the to the Echova shop in down near the river and I filled up my my two um empty washing up liquid bottles to bring back here and and the the nice thing about that was that was I got the shop lady to photograph so we can put that on like Instagram or whatever and and I think it's a good idea to kind of tell other people what you're doing because you can then help influence others, others. so it's not just about you know, doing what we can. It, we, I'm really keen to talk about it as much as possible. So, for example, we did Plastic Free February, but, and, and we, we talked a lot about that on social media and on our website, and it was really good fun. It wasn't preachy. We had great fun, like, oh, where can we buy our milk from now, and where can we get this, that, and the other? And so it was a sort of fun thing, and hopefully people thought, well, let's have a go at this next year or something. Um, so certainly, you know, this kind of myth, this, this old, outdated myth, that to run a successful business, you have to be some kind of ruthless, hard nut, mm. and selfish, and, mm. and trample on other people to get anywhere. It's just absolute, absolute rubbish. It's almost the opposite now. I think, mm, I, I think agree. certainly our customers, we have so many people. We had a lovely woman come down from the north of England and she wanted to get um, engaged, but she, she didn't want that lovely event to be part of something that might have caused any harm somewhere. And she came across our website and saw what we were doing with the, with the charity and other things. And so she came down and said, you know, I chose you because, because I want my, the process of my wedding to be a, a fun, beneficial thing. I don't want to, you know, mm. um, use some badly sourced mm. stones or some exploitative thing. Mm. Or, I mean, so many of these things. We, we hand make everything in the UK. It, it's actually based on sound. You know, it makes sense for business-wise because people like it. It's both sensible for business mm. and, and, you know, it's just, there's no reason not to. I just don't understand why people wouldn't do it. You know, well, it's like, a conscious what? business owner, isn't it? And it's also mm. the fact that it's actually brand enhancing, isn't it? Something I wanted to ask about is, I'm asked constantly, is, is about this sort of balance in my life between working as a yes. workaholic and yes. living. You've been working at building your brand now for 30 years. You now have a beautiful flagship store you have a great export business new jewelry school alongside your busy personal life three daughters and I've heard you say that you work seven days a week and there's been a lot of stress on your journey but you love what you do what have you taken out of that journey in in how to well it, it, it's much live in in in, in, a, in a cohesive way that I'm not sure I've, I've done it right there, there isn't a sort of magic potion that you can sort of Maybe maybe read some or, or go on some websites. This idea that you can have absolutely everything and everything's going to be perfect that that, is, that probably isn't going to happen. You, know, you 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 have to juggle your life and fit things in, and and of course now it's so much easier for me at work. I can leave early and have lovely holidays. There's so many people to help me out and and cover for things. But for a long time it was tricky, 
Um, but I kind of, I kind of think I probably had like two sets of batteries because I would, you know, do a long day and then I'd sort of rush home and do the kids. I mean, I suppose I've been slightly annoyed because this has often been portrayed as a an issue for women mm -hmm. with children. But I've fed and bathed and mm -hmm. bedtimed my children, and I've been up in the night for them, and I've I've had faced exactly the same set mm -hmm. of problems that mm -hmm. that, that uh, women decide. I don't really like putting a gender thing mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. I think if you do, it sort of almost gives some um, blokes the excuse not to mm -hmm. not to get involved. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I've, I've just sort of juggled it all. So so I've for, for quite a long time I was I would sort of get the kids in bed by by nine, and you know get the get the washing up done and the house tidy and the first load of washing on. And then I would work until perhaps two in the morning. Uh, Denise would go to bed. That's my. She's. I'm not sure how happy she was about that. But she'd go to bed about ten, and then I'd often sort of work till sort of two, and then up at seven again with the kids to get them ready for school. So you know, you do if you want to do a lot, you have to you put have in to, that work. You have to put in the hours, and it, and it can be pretty tiring. I think my only regret is where I have friends and family who were a little bit more and I'm not saying this in a bad way a little bit more selfish they, they'd sort of say well my hobby's cycling or tennis so right this weekend I'm going off you know mm -hmm. I'm making time for myself I, I never really did that and I think that would have been a good idea because now the kids are getting a bit older and work's getting a bit easier I'm not quite sure what else there is to me other than you don't play than, golf uh, no, no you don't no, do tennis God, yeah. 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 So, so you know I've, I've pretty much been family and and work, work. For Forever. quite a long time, yeah. and I think it would have been a nice idea to have to have been a little bit. It sounds weird to say selfish, but do you know what I mean. Sort of saying, yes. saying carve out that time for. <laughs> well, and talking about that, what's the future for Alex Monroe? You say work's getting easier. That's probably because you've worked that muscle now for thirty years, yeah, rather maybe. than the ambition <laughs> calming down. No, what's... certainly I'm doing less hours now. Um, yeah. um, but we've got this brilliant new shop on Floral Street, which we're opening very soon, which is going to be amazing. It's not really going to be a shop. It's going to be like a jewellery place where you can come and see things being made and have oh. lessons and talks. It's just going to be wait. a great place to come. And I have, you know, obviously we're always doing sort of new collections, but we started doing a bit of hardware and hooks and knobs and handles and all that sort of thing. And then I'm really keen, if I had more hours in the day, which I will one day, there's so many other projects I'd like to do, like a kind of uh, more foodie lifestyle thing, you know, like maybe some kind of farmy yoga retreaty restauranty you know there's there's just like no end of stuff no end and not enough blooming time to do it so yeah yeah well, I, lots oh, more I, lots more gosh yeah. i always end um the podcast by asking if your journey has been a roller coaster if you know which i i definitely would say it has been what's been one of your lowest lows on this on this journey oh, this roller yeah, coaster no, without a doubt when you set up a business and you really want to set up this this great place where where people can work and and reach their objectives and grow and do everything that they want to do and you want your you want to make something really lovely for your customers that they all enjoy so you're trying to do something that's sort of positive and good and actually contributes to to people in the world but inevitably there are times where maybe people maybe your people you're hiring staff within the company or it might be customers will 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 say this is absolutely appalling you're horrible i hate everything everything you do is crap you know you're ruining my life and i'm not very good at mm -hmm. i don't have that that water of a duck's back thing and so i that can really 
knock me for six. When you work so hard trying to be contributive and you end up either upsetting people or, or, mm. or, or I don't know what, you know, it, it can really, it can really not, it really knocks me for six. Um, and, you know, on certain occasions I have failed. On other occasions, I think I've, I've, I've done my bloody best and I didn't fail, but I, you, you still have to take the crap, whatever, you know, because that's your, your job, really. So And the opposite, <clears throat> when, you're, when you're soaring oh, high? High points without, absolutely. There are, there are these sort of slightly superficial high points, which are great fun, which, which would be, one great thing is, is that I meet lots of interesting people. So, you know, if all these all famous actresses and beautiful film stars all, all writing and wanting to have jewellery and things like that, it's great, it's great fun, and it's the froth. But the driver is actually sitting at my workbench with, with these amazing, amazing young people who are so talented. And it just gives you such faith and, and sort of love for the future and the world to, to be making things and to be, and to be working with, with vibrant, intelligent, yeah. talented young people. And then, of course, there's, you know, when you hear the story about the woman whose kid went to school and stuff, or there are some really, really heartbreaking stories. Again, they sort of, they're the really deep and meaningful things that sort of really, really make it so rewarding, yeah. And I've also started asking my guests who they would personally recommend that I would interview. Someone that's inspired you that you think I should interview to inspire others. That was such a... I really struggled with this one because I've tended to sort of slightly sort of ignore what other people have done. But there's a few sort of probably quite unexpected people. There's a couple, the Sam Clarks, who who started um, Morrow, who have always been a sort of a bit of a constant for me because you go in there on a sort of Wednesday morning and, and they get up at six and they're making the bread. They're doing mm. what they do mm. and they do it so well and they've done it for such a long period of time. It's kind of like as long as they're there, I sort of think, you know, that, good that, that's quite world. good. So, so Sam Clark's great. But there's also this, I really like this young woman called um, Hannah who runs um, Hive of Beer. And it's quite, I was quite, you know, she's a really good brewer and really into her beer. And she's made this amazingly successful business out of it. And then someone I'd call more of a sort of mentor would be Paul Smith, who's been very generous to me and given me time and advice. And so there's kind of, I don't yes. know how to choose between those but three. They, they've but they've been around you. Well, <laughs> yeah. thank you for that. This has just been wonderful, Alex. I, I've enjoyed our chat so much. The genius behind this brand that I look at every single day when I'm at Holly & Co. And I know you have so many fans out there, especially in the small business community, that thank love you. your products and will love this podcast. So thank you for your wisdom and advice today. I know it's just going to inspire so many people. And you're just such a lovely person to look at and Thanks, a beautiful twinkle in your eyes because, you know, you've been doing this for 30 years and yet, you know, it could be day one for the enthusiasm you have for your company. So it's really <laughs> infectious, lovely. really That's infectious. Lovely. So this is the part of the podcast where I hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. And I haven't heard what you're going to say, but I just wanted to thank you in advance for sharing a little bit of your soul with us today. Well, you've been lovely. It's been a really fun thing to do. So oh, thank I'm you so, so much. Pleased, yeah. So pleased. <laughs> over to you. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Alex, here's a thing. I've been asked to write a letter to my younger self. I know. I was dead against it too. It's a stupid idea. There's absolutely nothing I can tell you that you'd listen to. And more's the point. I'm nicely okay these days. Thanks very much. 
We both love the Back to the Future films. I'm not sure how old you are, so uh, stay with me if you haven't seen it. You will like the Back to the Future films. I'm very conscious that if I, if I were to go back and change one tiny single thing in my past, I might not end up exactly where I am right now when I was writing, which is lying on the sofa, watching TV with my gorgeous daughter Libby, two dogs on the rug, wife Denise out at the theatre, and my tummy full of fennel pesto, which, by the way, I picked in Suffolk near Icon. You remember Icon. So what have I got to say to you? I had an idea to give you a list of the winning horses over the past few decades, but then again, I remember Biff Tannen and thought the better of it. So, I am 50 flipping five years old right now, and what's odd is that I don't really feel like it. I kind of feel exactly the same as you do. I'm just peering out of an old man's eyes. Oh my gosh, when I catch myself in a mirror or the camera on my phone flips to selfie, I get a right proper shock. I wouldn't say I'm happy, but we worked that out years ago, didn't we? Our life isn't going to be as simple as that. It's going to be chock-a-block full, lots of sadness and pain, so much blooming pain, you just wait, you have arthritis, which is going to land you in hospital for long stretches. You'll have crashes and fights and falls and heartache and depression and insecurity and anxiety, quite crippling at times, and an exhausting social anxiety, desperate to be fun and interesting and clever and to impress and to fit in and above all to be liked. Constant worry about what people think of you. None of that's going to go away. In fact, I think it might get worse. Sorry. But it's going to be a multicolored, lush, textured roller coaster of a life with every type of love mad, passionate, crushing love, love of friends. You still have the same friends and you make a lot more. Love from your family, your wife, and gorgeous, heartbreaking, generous love from your three wonderful children. You'd be well to see it when it's in front of you. There will also be terror and death. Illness, pain and pleasure, adrenaline and boredom. I think you're okay, and I think you're on it. But do remember, embrace every second of it. I'm looking back at some old photos, and the one thing I'd like to try and get through to you is that you're actually gorgeous. Nowadays, things have changed so much. Young men can be whoever they want to be without judgment. My kids freely accept gender, fluidity, and really don't care about sexuality. It's not even a thing anymore. All your flower pressing and sketching and fancy fashion designing and sewing and the makeup and the camp androgynous clothes would be totally fine today. I see you in Italy in your tight white shorts with a green and yellow t-shirt holding a cigarette like Bridget Bardo, midriff exposed, long brown legs and eyelashes. And I think you look great. Effeminate, sure, but gorgeous. Just because you're different doesn't mean the girls won't like you. So. Enjoy the ride, young me. One thing I can promise you, it's going to be life all right. Keep up the French and Italian. It's hard catching up on everything I've forgotten. And do some bloody exercise. It's so exhausting trying to keep, keep fit now I'm older. I wouldn't change a thing, so I guess the only thing I can tell you is do everything exactly the same. It's a right proper blast. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard to get through. You said it was cathartic, right? It's hard to get through. I just, um, how do I get mm. to be so lucky? I get <laughs> well, to listen nice to what's to a beautiful letter 
a beautiful letter Thank to gorgeous you, for, you who Thank is you still for gorgeous. Me to, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years, and it was really quite a. You know, I started off a little bit sort of not sure about it, but um, it, it it became quite difficult, and um, uh, and and I think I I realised things about myself that I hadn't. You 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 often don't think about things, do you? If if, if you can stay busy enough, you don't think about things. So it was a, it was a real privilege to to do that. So thanks to you. Heidi. Well, it was a complete one. Well, a mess. <laughs> it was a complete privilege to listen to. I thought I was going to. to stop at certain times. I know. Well, that's, I was doing your crying for you. Thank you. You're Love a joy. It. Absolute Love joy, Thank Alex. So Thanks much, so Alex. much. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come then bring them